Uh, I came across a, a book this week by a sociologist. Her name's Carolyn Chin. Uh, she's a professor at Cal Berkeley, and she wrote a book called Work, Pray, Code. And uh, in this book, she's um, doing a lot of research on workers, tech workers in the Silicon Valley. And what she found were uh, that Silicon Valley uh, has some really what we might think are outrageous benefits for their employees. I mean, uh, uh, many of them have chefs. You know, we've put that in the budget this year for us here in the church. Um, they have sleep pods, meditation rooms, workout facilities, yoga classes, and all of this is on site. You don't have to leave work to do these things. They're right there in the building. It sounds amazing at first, but she said, here's the subtle message to the employee from the employer. It's this, don't leave work. We will meet all of your needs. We will give you anything except time off. She goes on to say that overworking applies to more than just techies. She said that many Americans, both white collar and blue collar, many of whom work 50 to 60 hour work weeks at one big job or multiple jobs. And for many of us working this hard, it's an assumption. And when it is, then something's got to give. It's our health, it's our relationships, it's our spirituality. And the only thing that you can consistently, the only way you can consistently perform at this level is if you have this concierge service that she calls corporate maternalism that your employer provides for you that helps make relationships and health and spirituality easy. And that's why she says in the Silicon Valley, the religion of choice is work. And I'd say that's true from what I see too here in Lexington, Kentucky. I see uh, people, especially being in a university town where the the college education level is high, where lots of people have college degrees. It's a bit of a meritocracy here in Lexington. I see people, they work not just to pay the bills, but their work is supposed to give some kind of meaning and purpose and dignity to their lives. And even if you are religious, Christian even, we unconsciously, we get swept up into our work to a degree that it becomes all-consuming. You've got texts and emails coming in at all hours of the day and night. Your to-do list is never-ending. And where does this commitment to work leave us? Does it leave us tired, exhausted even, anxious? But in some ways, 21st century America, like the Kentucky in 2023, is unique. But in other ways, it's not. Overworking is just part of the human condition. It's, it's, it's possible to be slothful, sure, but I think it's particularly likely for us in this room that we work too much. Or even if you don't have a job or you just work part-time, all that you have on your plate, you're willing to take on too much responsibility. And that's why the scriptures address it. They address it in this psalm, Psalm 127. So let's read it together. Verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies, 
in the gate. The word of the Lord. What you should see here is that this is a psalm. It's a psalm of Solomon. Solomon's David's son. Solomon is said to be the wisest man who ever lived. He wrote much of the book of Proverbs, which is, just a, the, which is the longest biblical book of wisdom. And when you read this psalm, you notice quickly that this isn't a prayer. You notice quickly that it doesn't contain a bunch of commands. And it's because it's a wisdom psalm. It's instructing us. Solomon's just saying, here's how life works. And in this particular psalm, he's explaining the problem of vanity. And then he gives us two cures for our vanity. So let's look at the problem first. You see it in verses 1 and 2. The problem is vanity. It's not work. It's, and these two verses bring it out very clearly. It says uh, that there are two fundamental tasks in life, doesn't it? It says that those who build the house, talking about creation. This is watch over the city. He's talking about conservation. When he says build the house, he's not addressing carpenters building physical houses. He's using building a house in much the same way that the rest of the Old Testament uses it. And when the Old Testament uses this phrase, it's usually referring to building a life, building a legacy. And then once you've built the house, you've built a life, you want to conserve it. That's why you get a bunch of insurance, right? You want to watch over it. You want to protect it. And the psalmist here, Solomon, uses a different metaphor than house. He uses the metaphor city, but they're synonymous. And so our working assumption in life is that if we build well and we watch diligently, then we'll be a success. And it's not altogether a wrong uh, assumption. I mean, the very next psalm, Psalm 128, says this. It says, you shall eat the fruit of your labor, of your hands, you shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. And this psalmist is just commending work here. And we see this in another place. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. So the problem in this isn't watching. It's not working per se. It's vanity. It's, it's trying to expose the reason for our hard work. And vanity is seen three times. You see it once in verse 1. You see it twice in verse 2. And vanity is just when we think we can build something lasting and that we can protect it without the Lord's aid. So we, all, we have a tendency, all of us, to magnify our abilities when we work around the clock, when we refuse prayer, when we think that everything depends on us. There's a constant striving. It's all grit. And when it is, it's useless. It's unsubstantial. It's very temporary. It's empty. It's vain. It's just like the passage that Mary Beth read earlier from Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says that we build our house on the sand and it's so easily washed away. But it's often hard to see how vain we are. I mean, somebody asked you, are you vain? You'd probably say no. Or somebody said, are you vain? You'd say yes, but you'd be sure how you're vain. But the psalmist here, Solomon, tells us how we can know we're vain, and it says, he says, if we're anxious, that's how you know you're vain. Look at verse 2. It says, eating the bread of anxious toil. And see, when we work out of our anxiety, it's like trying to quench your hunger with a, with a bunch of Skittles instead of solid food, isn't it? You'll just make yourself more hungry. You'll just become more miserable. You'll be hungry and sick to your stomach. Skittles are just empty calories. 
And so when we work out of anxiety, it's just the same way. We're, 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 we don't accomplish very much. And we become miserable. So our anxiety should be a kind of alarm that trying to tell us that we've become vain. So let me ask you a couple of questions. What are you trying to build? Or maybe what are you trying to rebuild? What are you trying to protect? I mean, maybe it's got something to do with your job. Maybe it has to do with some kind of personal improvement plan where you're healthy on all fronts. You're emotionally healthy, so you do these things. You're physically healthy, so you do these things. You're spiritually healthy, so you can be these things, all for the sake of self-improvement. Maybe you're trying to build and protect something that has to do with relationships. Maybe it even has to do something with ministry. What verses 1 and 2 are trying to do is call our frenetic activity into question. It's asking us to consider that maybe our success at all costs mentality, it's not a sign of virtue. And one thing's sure, the text's solution to our vanity is not to work harder. Instead, it's calling us to trust God by doing two other things. You see at the end of verse 2, you see what it says? That God gives us beloved sleep. That's a solution to our vanity. And then in verses 3 to 5 gives us another solution. It's investing in children. Let's look at sleep first, verse 2. Now, let me make, uh, say something. I, and honestly, if there's one way you can pray for me, you can pray for my sleeping. I'm terrible at it. I mean, I've tried everything. I, my house is at 68 degrees. If it's at 71, I'm not sleeping. In fact, if it's at 69, I'm not sleeping. 68, I've got a chance. Maybe 67 would help. I've tried throwing back some melatonin before I go to bed. Not done help. I've done the whole no screens before bed. Doesn't help. I'm working out like a madman. Doesn't help. I'm watching what I eat and drink. Doesn't help. And so I Googled some things this week because I was so fed up with not being able to sleep. And here's what I found. One thing is I could drink cinnamon banana tea, apparently. I could curl and uncurl my toes. I could point my bed northward. I could lather my head with yellow soap. I could eat raw or fried onions before I go to bed, supposedly. Here's one from a different culture, but maybe um, I could knock back the bile of a castrated boar. I could smear dog ear wax on my teeth. That's what one. This is, this is an academic study, by the way. I think of all those, I'm going to start with curling and uncurling my toes uh, tonight, maybe. And apparently, I'm not the only one who can't sleep. The CDC found that U.S. adults, on average, get six and a half hours of sleep when eight hours is what's recommended. We all know that a lack of sleep, it's connected with type 2 diabetes and heart disease and obesity and depression. It's linked with motor vehicle crashes. So clearly, sleep's not a luxury, Right? It's a biological need, and what the psalmist is trying to tell us is that it's an act of faith. See, sleep is the one time a day where I relinquish the delusion of control, and I can just float like driftwood. I can't fix anything when I'm asleep. I can't fix my family. I can't fix this church. I can't fix this city. I certainly can't fix the world, and most importantly, I can't fix myself when I'm asleep. 
See, sleep's just the result of someone who really has cast their anxiety on God and letting God take care of tomorrow. See, if the building and the watching are up to God, then guess what? You get to sleep. What a relief. So, brother and sister, the next time you feel buried by your responsibilities, the next time you're despairing over the lack of capacity that you might have, guess what you can do? Take a nap. God is calling you to take a nap. Get a sleep pod. So sleeping is a solution to our vanity. But the other one is investing in children. You know, earlier this summer, because I really like these first two verses, you know, it's like I wanted to preach two different sermons, one on verses one and two. We just talk about vanity and work and sleep, you know. And then we could come back next week and we could do three to five and just talk about kids. I mean, we got a million of them around here. Might as well. And I was like, what, what's the connection here? But there's one, and the psalmist is really clear about it, and it's not obvious to us. But see, what's held together here are that there are words in verses 1 and 2 that are phonetically linked to words in verses 3 to 5. See, the, the words in verses 1 and 2 for house and builders are almost the exact same in the original language as sons and heritage. So, the, so these verses are, these three verses, three to five, are answering from verses one and two. You want to build a life? You want to watch over your life? You can go to sleep and you can invest in children. Now, I know that can quickly turn off many ears in this room. And I understand that. But think again. We talked about this last week for just a moment if you were with us, but this is a psalm of ascent. Psalms 120 to 134 are psalms of ascent that. Israel would say as they were traveling, if you lived outside of Jerusalem and you were traveling into Jerusalem for any of the annual feasts, you would be repeating these 15 psalms over and over again within your caravan. And so as you're saying Psalm 127, when it's saying house, what it meant was the temple. When it's talking about the city, it's talking about Jerusalem. So yes, house and city can mean life in general, but can also mean the church. And the implication for me and you is that if you want to build a church and you want to ensure its future, then invest in children. And when you put it in this context, it removes this from being addressed only to parents talking about their offspring. It's talking about the church and its children. And notice all the words that Solomon uses for children. Verse 3 says that they're a heritage from the Lord. It says that they're a reward. It said that they're arrows. It says they bless their parents. It says that they prevent shame. See, in biblical times, children weren't a presumption or a given like they are for many of us. See, back in biblical times, they lacked medical technology and having children was a great risk. Almost all ancients, they lived with the pain of infertility and miscarriages just like we do, but many of them also had really painful stories of losing children at young ages. Almost everyone had stories of losing wives or sisters or mothers to death and childbirth. So when things went well, children were seen as a blessing. And I'm afraid that our world doesn't take the same view. The Pew Research Center found that less people are having children in the U.S. than ever. 
It already hit a record low before the pandemic, and now it's taken another downturn. And some of the reasons people aren't having children are, are very understandable. They're medical, they're financial, they are without a mate, they're, they're too old to have children. But all of the reasons, all those reasons that I just gave, they pale in comparison to the number one reason given for not having children. The number one reason for not having children in the U.S. is this. I just don't want to. The reasons you don't want to is people are afraid of what they listed anyways, is they're afraid of having less sex. They're afraid that they're going to drain their bank account. Let me assure you, that will happen. The reason they don't want to is terrible for the environment. Afraid of having less sleep, and I can attest to that one too, by the way. Actually, I think that's the cure for me. You know, it's when they're all out of the house, maybe I'll sleep again, you know. Like 25 years of saying I'm not going to sleep, I don't know. So sure, our world can see children as a burden instead of a blessing, but how they're a blessing? Well, the text tells us in some ways, I mean, one way is that they give you a longer timeline for impact. See, when you invest in children, you're implicitly saying, I have limitations in my building and watching capacity, but children can carry the legacy of the gospel forward beyond my time. Another way they're a blessing is that they cure your vanity. And the way they cure your vanity is that they're a built-in governor for how much you can accomplish, especially when they're really little. See, little kids, they need so much it keeps you from maximizing your productivity. And that's why investing in children is an acknowledgement that one is not vain. But think about children being arrows for a minute. It's an odd metaphor, isn't it? I mean, verse 4, this is like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's use. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. But think about arrows. Arrows are designed to make a predetermined impact on a long-range target. Arrows are carefully prepared and then tested before they're used in battle. Well, in the same way, adults nurture children to accomplish the task at hand, which are building the church and watching over it. Children should be seen for their potential impact on the world. Children are not primarily to be displayed to make their parents look good, nor should they be kept close to home to provide a false security for their parents. They're to be sent out with purpose to carry forth the gospel's agenda. One example, it's a bit extreme, but I just really love this. One is uh, from a famous missionary from 1810, Adoniram Judson. He was a young man in New England, and he's getting ready to go to modern-day modern Myanmar. And he uh, wants to marry a godly woman that he's met named Anne Hazeltine. And he writes Anne Hazeltine's father a letter to ask for permission to marry her. Here's what he writes. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this? for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you. 
brother and sister, I'm saying this as much to me as to you, but we have too small a vision. If we just want our kids to be baptized, then to come up here at 10 or 12 and confess their faith, to not be too wild in high school and college, and then to come home as adults for Christmas. We need to hold out a vision for them of building and protecting the church. See, viewing kids as blessings and arrows is counterculture for our 21st century Western worldview, for, but for others, it's not. If you went to Muslims and told them these things, they'd be like, yep, that's what we're on board with. If you went to Mormons, they'd be applauding everything I just said. So to say that sleep and investing in children is not necessarily good news. It might be helpful tips, might be biblical tidbits, but what if you can't sleep? You want to, just can't get there. What if you just can't stop worrying about work? Where are you going to start? What are you going to do if you're a parent? And you're trying or perhaps you tried with all your might. You, you had this vision as your kids as arrows that were going to make a gospel impact into the world, but they weren't interested in making that kind of impact. See, as a pastor, I don't know if I've seen people who have experienced more heartache than Christian parents who have unbelieving adult children. I don't know if I've seen more anxiety in myself or other people in my shoes with children at home than considering the possibility of their kids not growing up as heirs. We worry about their friends. We worry about where they go to school. We choose churches with functioning children and youth ministries. But we forget a lot. Whether your children are out of the house or in the house, we, we forget that our children are born sinners. They're not just clay that we get to make into some kind of mold. We, we, we overestimate our ability to influence them many times. We don't make them sinners. They're born that way. Their only hope in life and in death is, their hope is not in being born to a Christian family. It's in Christ. It's in him alone. There, there aren't any guarantees no amount of Christian schooling, no amount of family devotions, no amount of church attendance or Christian camps or Christian friends is going to undo their sinful nature. And, and we know that up here, don't we? We aren't ignorant about the doctrine of human depravity, but we easily deny that it exists within our family. And so as parents, we've got to confront our sin We've got to repent. We've got to seek forgiveness for our failures from God first and then from our children. We, we've got to admit our inability to convert them and to change them. We've got to be content in just loving them on God's terms and being faithful to pray. So how are you going to go about resting? How are you going to go about taking a nap? Think about when Jesus cried out. He said, it's finished. He meant the work's done. <laughs> There's nothing left for you to do. Nothing's required. Righteousness has been secured and now it's available to you through faith so you can take a nap because there's nothing left for you to achieve. And when that hits home, you can quit building the house and protecting the city. That's how you can start. How about investing in children? I mean, if you have wayward children or you're mortified that one day you will have wayward children, no that your God knows what that's like. I mean, think about the prodigal son parable. He had two sons. Both sons refused to enjoy his company. One was wild and absent. The other was prideful and present. 
So when things aren't going as hoped with your adult children, and you fear that your parental failures are going to make having wayward children inevitability, let me implore you to go to the throne of grace where you'll find Jesus who's able to sympathize with your weaknesses and he's going to be able to give you heaping portions of mercy and grace in your time of need. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. You have given us a vision for work here that uh, seems very different than what comes natural to many of us. And Lord, I pray that you'd keep us from sloth, you'd keep us from overworking. Lord, you'd help us to sleep. You'd help us to relinquish our, the delusion that we're in control. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church, Lord, form our children into eras, children with impact, or that we would see children as a blessing and not just as a burden. So, Lord, would you fill us with your help? Lord, many of us, that's, that's our grind day in and day out. And, Lord, I pray for the rest of us who aren't living with children, Lord, that we would come alongside these parents and supplement the work they're doing and encourage them and pray for them. Oh, Lord, help us. In Christ's name, amen.